welcome uh, to all of you this morning, especially if you're a guest. We hope you're encouraged, feel welcome as we worship. Uh, we'll be looking at the passage that you just heard read. Thank you, Zach, for reading that for us. So it'll be Colossians chapter 1, if you have a Bible uh, in front of you. Well, some years ago, a Massachusetts woman was arrested after her car ended up in a place she didn't intend it to go. Uh, she told the officer at the time that it was her GPS that was at fault. Her GPS told her to turn left, and she found herself in a cornfield. And so she decided to keep driving to get out of the cornfield. That was her story. So rather than taking ownership, she blamed her GPS. Have you ever blamed your GPS for anything? I see, yeah, I see some honest people out there. Ending up in a cornfield, though, would be bad enough as wrong turns go. Uh, but even worse, if you think the uh, a cornfield, that you think you're in a cornfield and it turns out to be uh, a golf course. <laughs> what I didn't mention is that she was arrested for drunk driving. She left the road at some point and entered this golf course going 45 miles an hour. She ended up miraculously not hurting anyone, but she got stuck in this sand trap. Uh, chances are the alcohol had something to do with it. It's a possibility. But even if her GPS was giving her wrong directions, right, she had no business driving if she couldn't tell the difference between a cornfield and a golf course, right? Now, in our passage today, Paul gives believers a clear map. You're wondering how I was going to transition to the passage from here, weren't you? Uh, Paul gives believers a clear map. He tells us where we are. He tells us where we're going, and he gives us the means to get there. And so we continue our series in the book of Colossians. Paul, the apostles, writing to this church at Colossae to encourage them. They're being bombarded by false teachers. Last week, we looked at this incredible hymn about Jesus in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1. We saw that Christ is our all-sufficient creator and sustainer and savior. And now Paul shows us as he begins to unfold that truth for us and apply it to us, he shows that this incredible, beautiful, lofty hymn that we saw last week isn't just some amazing truth out there, but it connects to our everyday lives. It actually grounds us in our reality. And so let's take a look at these verses uh, in the next few minutes and see this map, if you will, that shows us where we are in Christ. It shows us where we're going and how God's going to bring us there. But let's pray as we turn to this passage. Well, Father, we come in dependence on you to open our eyes, open our hearts to the truth of your word. We give you thanks for the power and the beauty of this ancient letter and the way that your spirit speaks it fresh and new to us even today. And so again, we ask your movement in our midst that you would grow us in Christ together. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at our text, starting in verses uh, 21 through 23. I'll be reading from the CSB. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith." And are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. 
Let's stop right there for just a minute. These three verses that we just read, verses 21 through 23, are a key section of the letter. It's where Paul transitions again from this incredible Christ hymn that we saw last week to the rest of the letter, how he's going to unfold and apply this to us, how he's going to apply this incredible truth about the person and work of Christ to our lives as Christians. In the case of the Colossians, again, remember, they're being surrounded by false teachers. They're being infiltrated in some way. These verses give us the big picture of the passage that we're looking at today in the verses following, a spiritual map, if you will, uh, to help us get our bearings. This passage tells us where we are in Christ. It tells us where we're ultimately going and how, again, God is going to bring us there. And so just where are we as believers in Christ? Where are we? Well, Paul says clearly in verse 21 Once you were alienated from God, but now he has reconciled us, okay? It's no use handing someone a map of an area if they don't even know where they are to begin with, right? It's kind of like one of those helpful you are here stickers on a map in the mall or at a park. It helps us get our bearings. Okay, now I can see the rest of the map and understand if I know uh, where I am. So Paul's immediate application of the Christ hymn is to tell us as believers, hey, this is where you are. It's important that we know as Christians where we are in Christ. It's important that we don't forget where we are. The Colossians are being influenced by false teachers. We today, there's false teaching all around us. There's the influence of our culture and its values. And on the inside, our emotions go up and down. So they're not always a reliable marker of where we are, are they? So if we want to move forward in our walk with Christ, we have to know where we are. So if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is where you are. Once you were alienated, but now he has reconciled you. You are here. How did he do that? How did Jesus put us in this place? Well, in the Christ hymn that we saw last week, we were told Jesus made peace through his blood shed on the cross. And here in these verses, Paul adds, by his physical body through his death. There's plenty of ancient heresies that denied Jesus had a physical body. And so the Colossian heresy, they may have been suggesting that here in some way. But in no uncertain terms, Paul is saying, we are where we are, reconciled to God forever because of the physical death, the total sacrifice of God the Son for us. And so when we're struggling, we need to keep coming back to the central truth of where we are, who we are in Christ. Like the song that we often sing together, who the sun sets free is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Right? That's kind of like what Paul's saying here. This is where we are. This is who we are in Christ. That's our red dot on the map. And so where are we going? Well, Paul tells us to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. This is our ultimate end as believers, to be presented before God, he says, holy, faultless, and blameless. Now this word present has sacrificial overtones. And for faultless, your translation may have something like without blemish. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, those sacrifices needed to be presented to God without blemish. And so Jesus, the only fully holy and without fault human being, gave himself for us, those of us who are full of faults, right? Those of us who are sinful, he sacrificed himself for us that we might be made righteous in him. 
And so now as the Father sees us, He sees the Son without blemish. But we're also blameless, Paul says, or free from accusation. This is a judicial word. Satan, the enemy, is called the accuser of the brethren in Scripture. He likes to point out our sinfulness, the ways that we still struggle as believers with our thoughts, our words, our actions, the ways that our lives are inconsistent with our profession of faith. Satan likes to point that out. But God says, look at Jesus. Because we all still fail, we all still struggle with sin on this side of eternity, but thankfully Jesus is now standing in our place. Our ultimate destiny isn't up to our performance because, as Paul's teaching us here, he did it all. He has reconciled us. Done deal. Past tense. And so the enemy's accusations can't stick because when Satan's pointing the finger, he realizes he's pointing at Jesus. And those accusations don't work so well. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. None. And Paul says it so well in Romans 8, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So Satan's out of luck when he tries to accuse us. And so on this spiritual map, Paul is showing us where the journey is taking us, to this eternity where we will stand forever with God in his presence, reconciled, holy, blameless. So we know where we are in Christ, as Paul's told us. We know where we're ultimately going in his presence. But what about the road to get there? Look back at verse 23. Paul says, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now wait just a minute. It's like, okay, I knew there was a catch, Paul. I knew there was a catch. This is all true, these wonderful promises for the believer, as long as you stay the course. If you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith. This might at first reading seem kind of like a fine print that Paul just throws in. Oh, by, oh, by the way, as long as you stay the course, right? But really this statement is pivotal. This statement is highlighted by Paul and he's going to continue to elaborate on this steadfastness, this grounded and steadfast command here. This statement is pivotal to how he's encouraging the Colossian church, how he's encouraging us. So what does he mean? by grounded and steadfast. Let's again get our bearings here. Where are we on the map? What, what Paul doesn't mean here is sinless perfection. This is, this is not what God expects of us on this side of eternity. Remember, the whole context here is the all-sufficient person work of Christ. And now being applied to the believer. We who are sinful being reconciled to the Father, being made righteous by the death and resurrection of Jesus, the one who is sinless, right? The believer's standing with God is a done deal. So he's not saying we can earn our salvation by being steadfast, nor do we keep our salvation by being steadfast. And so if you follow the logic here, if we can't earn our salvation by our good works, we can't unearn our salvation by our bad works, right? He says it here positively and negatively, and so let's see how he states it negatively if being grounded and steadfast is the positive. What's the negative? He says, and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This is key. Remember the context here. False teachers are coming in and trying to pull the Colossians away from their hope in the gospel itself. They were grounded and steadfast. Paul says, stay there. Don't be pulled away. Grounded and steadfast has this idea of a strong foundation, holding on to the hope of the gospel. 
And so we as believers are not shifted away from our hope in the gospel when we occasionally struggle with sin. When we fall into a period of complacency in our faith. When we fail to pray for a day or two. No, Paul is warning his readers here of the dangers of abandoning their hope entirely. Of drifting away from Christ. Shifted, being shifted away is kind of like ending up in the sand trap. Or in a cornfield when you think you're on the road, right? That's what Paul's talking about here. And that outcome shows that the person's faith wasn't really genuine to begin with. It wasn't real. And so the way that Paul puts this all together is he has confidence in the Colossians' faith. Remember, he began the letter by commending their faith in Christ, their love for the saints. He says, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. He's not doubting their salvation. He's not giving us these words to make us doubt our salvation, but to encourage us to live out our genuine faith. That's what Paul's doing here. This is our responsibility. This is our privilege while we walk on this road to our final destination. As Douglas Moo, the commentator, puts it, we who are already holy in status need to be holy in reality, right? That makes sense. And so these three verses form the big picture for us. They're kind of like a map, where we are in Christ, where we're going, and how God is bringing us there. And so let's briefly look at the following section, the next few verses, and as Paul begins to expand on these ideas a little more. Look at verses 24 and 25. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, And I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. And so Paul has shined the spotlight on Jesus. He's turned his attention to the Colossian church. And now he's shining the spotlight on himself a little bit, his own example. He's a servant of the gospel, he said. And he's so grounded and steadfast himself, that he can even find joy in his suffering because he doesn't lose sight of what it's all about and who it's all about. He says he in some way suffers for them, for these Colossian believers. Remember, Paul didn't start this church. We don't even think Paul had been to this church, and yet in some way his suffering for the gospel is for their benefit. But what does he mean by completing what is lacking Right? That's where a lot of our eyes are maybe going on the page here. What does Paul mean by completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? As always, context is key. What this doesn't mean, what this can't mean, is that anything was lacking in the sacrifice of Christ for us. Remember what we've just been seeing so far in this entire letter. I also refer you to the New Testament, if we're in doubt of that truth. His death and resurrection completely paid the price for our redemption, for our reconciliation with God, which again is what he's been saying all along. The Greek word here for affliction is not used ever to describe the death of Christ, of his sacrifice. This word is used of troubles, of distress, of trials. And when he says he's completing what is lacking, that's the idea of of filling up, filling up something, a word which occurs only here in the New Testament, which makes understanding it a little bit trickier. But Paul's writing in the context of eschatology or last things. Remember, he said where we're ultimately going. He's pointing us to this final day where we're going to be presented before God holy and blameless. And there was a Jewish belief that God's people would go through some measure of suffering 
of tribulation, of trial before that final day. And so in some way, it seems Paul's seeing his suffering is for their benefit. He's, he's helping fill up the tank and move things along toward that final day. But however we take this passage, and there's many commentators who go different directions here, the big idea that I think we can see here is Christ's intimate connection with his people. What does Paul say? He calls the church his body, reminding us that Christ suffers with his people. What did Paul say, to, or what did Jesus say to Paul when he knocked him off his horse at his conversion? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What a transformation that Christ made in the Apostle Paul. First, a persecutor of believers. Now he's rejoicing that he gets to suffer with Jesus, with the people of Jesus, his body. This connects to the in Christ status that we have that Paul loves so much to talk about in his letters. Which again is where we are securely as believers. We are in Christ. And so Paul happily embraces this calling that God has given him to be a servant of the gospel. Look how he describes the gospel in verses 26 and 27. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the false teachers, they're trying to entice the Colossian believers in some way, uh, some sort of secret knowledge, some special knowledge, if they can get on the inside track. Now Paul says, hey, the truth is so much better. The gospel mystery, though hidden for centuries, it's now been revealed. God has revealed it to his saints, not some of God's people, all of God's people. He's revealed it to the church. There's no knowledge that's more special. There's no secret knowledge more life-changing than this. And he's revealed it. And here it is, is what Paul's saying. He says this truth is a glorious wealth that God wanted to reveal. Again, not to a select few, and not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles too. That they too would be included in God's people through Christ. This incredible plan of God, this mystery that Paul is talking about here is ultimately a person. Paul says it's Christ in us. We are in Christ. It's where we are. It's whose we are, right? But also Christ is in us. He lives in us and through us, and Paul is still unfolding for us the implications of verses 15 through 20. This beautiful picture of the all-sufficient Son of God. So Paul is saying, hey, why are you being tempted to some secret knowledge when God has revealed this. In our day, why are we tempted with what the world offers when the Son of God himself indwells his people through the Spirit? Why are we at times tempted to look only at our circumstances in the here and now, tempted to despair when the Son of God dwells within his people through the person of the Spirit? Paul's bringing us back to the truth. Now look at these last two verses, 28 and 29. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. So Paul brings us back here to where we're headed and his example of what it looks like to be grounded, to be steadfast in the faith toward this ultimate goal. His ministry, he says, all of it is proclaiming his warning and teaching. Everything that God has called him to do, everything that he's doing is with this goal 
of presenting all the saints mature in Christ. Remember earlier in the passage, this presenting to God was all God's doing as we're presented before God holy and blameless and faultless. Well, Paul says his goal in ministry is that all of us would be presented to God mature in Christ. Now, this is still God's work, but here Paul's saying he's in on it. He gets to participate in it. We get to work alongside God in the work that he's doing. And so much of this passage brings together a right perspective on God's sovereignty versus human responsibility. That's always a struggle for us, isn't it? He says, Christ has reconciled you to God by his death, period, and be sure that you're grounded and steadfast in the faith, right? And now verse 29, Paul says, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Striving with his strength just captures this paradox beautifully, doesn't it? The sovereignty of God, God's work, and our responsibility. It's Paul here saying, I'm working hard, I'm working tirelessly for Jesus Christ, but I'm working with the strength of Christ in me. Your translation might say something like, struggling with all his energy. We tend to struggle to know how to balance, not just in our theology, the difference between uh, God's sovereignty and our responsibility, but just in our daily life, right? Just as we serve Christ, we tend to fall on either extreme. Either it's all up to me and God's will won't happen without my help, thank you very much, or we fall on the other extreme, right? Just kind of sitting back on the beach and let go and let God and grace will do the rest. But Paul's point here is neither of those extremes. Some of us would do well to just sit with this truth, to ask ourselves through the lens of this passage, what does it look like for me Or what would it look like for me if I'm not living this out to strive with the strength of Jesus Christ? How do I know if I'm serving in my own strength or in the strength of Christ? I love the way N.T. Wright boils this down. You may find this helpful here. He says that Paul does not go about his work half-heartedly, hoping vaguely that grace will fill in the gaps which he's too lazily to work at himself. Nor, however, does he imagine that it is all up to him, so that unless he burns himself out with restless, anxious toil, nothing will be achieved. He knows that God's desire is to bring Christians to maturity and that God has called him to have a share in that work. He can therefore work hard, notice this, without the stressful motivation of either pride or fear. And Paul becomes the example for us of a mature believer, striving in the strength of Christ. Which of those two extremes do you tend to fall into, thinking it's all up to you or just kind of sitting back and leaving it all up to God and not getting involved in what God is doing? How can Paul's example encourage us to strive with the strength of Christ, to free us from serving without pride, without fear? Now, Paul's going to continue to apply his Christology in the rest of the letter that we're going to see in the coming weeks. But for now, let's be reminded that we as believers, we're all heading toward the same ultimate end, being presented mature in Christ before God. God's work, let's make no mistake, it's all God's work, but he invites us into the process to be involved. As we remain grounded and steadfast in our faith, 
as we seek to serve others, to encourage them to grow in their faith like Paul did. See, that's where we're all headed. That's the big picture map. And so we need to remember to put all of our other life circumstances, all of our other priorities in that view, in the big picture of what God is doing, this big picture story of our lives. So our growth in Christ until that day, that's the story that God is writing. That's what God is doing in our lives. That's where we're going on the map. And so this can bring us great comfort when we face setbacks, can it? You might lose your job. You might have your friends turn against you. You might get a troubling diagnosis. All of these things can stop us in our tracks. All of these things can shake us to our core. But we need to remember that these aren't ultimately where God is taking us. It feels like a setback in the moment. On our map of how we imagine our lives going, maybe we feel like we've been derailed. But God is moving us forward. God is moving us closer to himself. We can all look back on suffering and difficult experiences in our lives and, say, and see clearly, I wouldn't be as close to God today if I hadn't gone through that, right? We can all see that at times in retrospect, and so let's remember that in the present. Whatever struggle we're facing, whatever's heavy on your heart right now, God is at work in your life. God is at work in the church. God is at work in the world conforming us to the image of his son. And so our, our efforts fighting that transformation or cooperating with it. I just find this passage so refreshing, really all of the book of Colossians, but it's so easy to feel lost at times in the Christian life, like we're just spinning our wheels or maybe we kind of get, feel like we're lost in the weeds. Where, where am I? Where am I going? And a passage like this just has such a way of helping us get our bearings. Whether it's false teachers, outside influences, it's our own hearts, make it so easy to forget where we are spiritually. So Paul's given us this truth. He says, believer, you are here. You are reconciled forever to God and Jesus Christ. God the Son dwells in you in the person of the Spirit. The end point on the map is where you're headed. The day that we will stand before God fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And until that day, we on this journey have his provision. We get to serve. We have the privilege of serving him with his strength. Not our strength, with his strength. And so we become free to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. To pour ourselves out for the good of others around us. For the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Thank you for this incredible letter to the Colossians that provides a spiritual refreshment. That takes us back to the big picture, to this foundational truth how the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ impacts our life every single day. And so give us eyes like Paul had to see beyond our circumstances, to enable us to rejoice in our suffering, to see the work you are doing in us, the work you are doing in the world. So free us, Father, from pride. Free us from fear as we seek to serve you, to strive not in our own strength, but yours. So it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.